If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Yo! Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. Thank you so much for hanging out here with me. As per usual, we are brought to you by the fine folks over at Aurelio's Pizza. Aurelio's Pizza, it's the sauce. Aureliospizza.com. You can check it out, find a location that's nearest you, and go have yourself a wonderful meal of pizza. When I was in Montreal, I'll do a whole pod on being in Montreal, or depending on when you listen to this, you've already heard my whole pod about being back in Montreal. I kept thinking about pizza, and partially because Montreal has a lot of great bread, and they actually, like, if you're starting to look for things that are good in Montreal, outside of, you know, the culture, the language, and everything else, they have good bread, they have good pizza. But I, I was thinking about Aurelio's while I was there. I was like, yeah, I'm going I'm to go home and give me some Aurelio's, and it's going to be awesome. And it was Aureliospizza.com. If you've been listening to the pod, you've noticed that the, the pod lately over the last few months has been a little less interviewee and more some stream of consciousness stuff, which I occasionally like to do. I do still like talking to people about the business and talking – journalism with them and I've been wanting to have a long-form conversation with my guest this week for a minute he's covered the Blackhawks it's now it seems like for forever but I've always felt like and this is not to throw shade I've always felt like there's more and I'm curious on what he's gonna do as like the the Blackhawks are in a rebuild mode because I think this guy is a top-notch journalist. And I think if you put him on any beat, and I'm not even just talking about sports, if you put him on any beat, I think that you would have a really smart, creative person who's unafraid asking questions. And when you look at some of the things that, some of the tough questions that he's had to ask over the last two years when it comes to the Blackhawks you know that he's not afraid those are the types of journalists that I love to talk to people that are going to have questions and thoughts so I'm glad that Mark Lazarus said yes to to being on the podcast and that he's he's someone that we can get back into talking like journalism with because I really appreciate his whole style so I'm not going to waste any more time I know I waste a lot of your time on my stream of consciousness snuff. Did I say snuff? I didn't mean to say snuff. Stuff. So I'm going to get right to it. Here is Mark Lazarus from The Athletic. Read him in The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Lazarus. Here we are talking journalism on House of L. So I was in Canada. I was in Montreal. I have fallen in love with Montreal. So <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a thing of multiple trips a year to Montreal. And I'm thinking at some point I'll go see a hockey game up there. I've I've, I've been to Montreal twice in the last nine months, and I got COVID both times. Seriously? Yeah, at the draft and at the Hawks game in in December. Oh, okay. Because honestly, like the two times (laughs) that I've been to Montreal this year. I love it. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I I felt like the most safe from COVID. (laughs) Like that's, that's the irony of it. But let me let me ask you, since you spend time in Canada, I went to Quebec City. That was awesome. Like, that was an awesome trip for me to make. I'm thinking about going to Ottawa, like go, flying to Montreal and then taking the train to Ottawa. Is there anything worth seeing in Ottawa? Ottawa is pretty cool. Like, the downtown area, it, it, it's, you know, it's the seat of government. It's kind of like their D.C. It's 
It's very pointy. The buildings are really cool. It's, it's a very unique cityscape. There's not a whole lot to do there. Okay. Granted, I, I'm usually there in the dead of winter, and the hockey rink is actually in Kanata, Canada, which is my favorite dateline. That's awesome. It's about 30 minutes outside the city, K-A-N-A-T-A, and it's in just absolute nowheresville, which is part of the problem with the Senators. So I don't know downtown all that well. I used to stay down there the first couple of years when I was still young and excited about being everywhere. And then it became about convenience. And there's like a Fairfield Inn, like half a mile from the rink. And I just go there and there's a little shopping center with a, a Walmart and a, uh, an extreme pita I can get lunch at. And I, by the time this is my 11th season we're coming up on, I am all about convenience and easy meals at this point. No, you're right about that. When I, when I was covering the Bears, I was kind of the same way where – you go to some cities and you're like, yeah, I could stay farther away in Kansas City and stay where there's a little bit more action, but the hotel's right there, and so is the field. And <laughs> Now imagine that 20 to 40 times a year instead of just eight. No, no doubt. No doubt about that. <laughs> as, far, as far as traveling into Canada to cover hockey, what's your favorite place that you go to up there? And why? Oh man, uh, I love Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver is probably the, the 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 coolest city in North America. I think just in terms of just the visuals, and you know, you're on the you're on the ocean, but you're also in the mountains. There, it's got everything you want there, and you know, it's a great eating town and a great walking around town. Uh, I love Vancouver. I like going. I like going to Edmonton. I know that's like most people don't think that, but I, I, I went there for the Western Conference final, which I was covering, which is great to be there in the springtime. It was gorgeous. It was daylight until like 1050 p.m. What? So you're just hanging out on a patio uh, and then under the midnight sun, having a couple of extra drinks, uh, talking hockey with some of my favorite people who live, live and work up there. Um, I, I there's my Maybe my favorite restaurant in the entire NHL is in Edmonton. It's a pretty city. It's cool. It's right on. It's got this river that snakes around it. I mean, I like Edmonton, even though it's usually literally 40 or 50 below zero when i'm there i've always had a soft spot for edmonton i like i like going everywhere i'm one of those writers like i'm never like oh god i gotta go to newark i'm always excited to go anywhere i like i like just being on the road and being in all these cities and i got a bar and a restaurant in every single city like there's always something i can look forward to i have some friends that work on a hockey night in canada punjabi and oh, they're yeah. and they're always raving about vancouver because yeah. every time so basically my my dude ron deep he he sees my stuff on Instagram and he's like, so wait, you went, you went to Montreal again. Like <laughs> you went to Quebec city. Why haven't you come to Vancouver? So that's, that's like high on my list too. But I, I love that you still have enthusiasm for traveling. Cause that's one thing that you do sometimes hear people in our business complain about yeah. is like the concept of travel, but it seems like you have a, a pretty healthy appreciation for what you're being allowed to do. Oh, man, this is all I wanted to do since I was like 11 years old, reading Newsday every morning, reading that sports section, which was just a murderer's row of sports writers back then. And all I wanted to be was a traveling sports writer, right? And I get to do that. And it took me a while to get to this point. And I, I, I try not to take that for granted. And I do love the travel aspect. I just, I like being on the road. It breaks up the monotony. I mean, I've done the nine to five, well, not nine to five, but, you know, I was a, a suburban sports editor for several years mm. where I had regular hours and, you know, in an office setting and the drudgery of that. And I love that job too, but that's a kind of monotony where, you know, you don't get that in this job every day. You're going somewhere else. You're doing something different. And, you know, for six seasons, I did it the sun times for six seasons where I was at every single game. And that wears on you. And that's when the Blackhawks were good. So I was covering, you know, deep playoff runs too. my first three years on the beat. I covered 12 playoff series. No other beat writer, day-to-day -day beat writer in North America did that. I was gassed by the time they lost to the Blues in the first round of 2016. Um, it's, it's a little different now. The summers are a little bit longer these days. But uh, with the Athletic, you know, I have Scott Powers. We kind of share the beat. So we, it's like half the travel and it's like the perfect amount. Like I go to like 20, 25 road games a year. And that's just like, that's like the sweet spot where you're, you're on the road a couple of times a month, maybe three or four times. You go on a long road trip here and there that goes to several cities. You get, you get a taste of it without the just over, you know, overbearing, just relentlessness of it, where it's cover a game at night, get to bed by 1am up at 345am to kick a, an Uber to the Denver airport to fly into some other city like that wears on you physically. And I got this perfect job now where it's like, I get to do some of that and not all of it. How do you think being an editor made you a better writer? Oh, no question. I was an editor for 12 years. I was uh, at least partly an editor until I was a full-time editor. It makes you, it certainly makes you a cleaner writer. Like, you know, a lot of writers, they're writers. That's what they do. They're, they've never been, you know, they're not English majors and they weren't, 
you know, uh, ever editors. So like I've, I've edited a lot of great writers who can't write, you know, guys who are amazing storytellers and wonderful interviewers and terrific reporters who can barely string a sentence together and get their, there, there, theirs. And it's, it's, it's wrong all the time. And, you know, it, it's kind of incredible. I, I like to think that uh, uh, the desk likes me because I'm a clean writer because I was an editor for all those years, but it also, you know, being an editor teaches you, you know, especially when I was back at the Sun Times, I thought visually, I thought about back pages and what, how we could design this and what the art might look like. And, you know, probably the desk would just roll their eyes and not want to hear it from their writers. But, you know, I, I like to think of the whole story package, not just the words, because I've been a designer, I've been a copy editor, I've been an agitator taking high school swimming scores over the phone for <laughs> hours on end. I've done, I've just about every job you can do in this business I've had. So, uh, I think that makes you a more well-rounded journalist who, you know, can appreciate everyone who's helping you. Like, you know, I, I never look down at the copy editing process. I never, I never shy away from an editor who wants to make my story better because I've been on the other side of that. Well, when it comes to expressing to the writer how they can be better, what was your approach in trying to, to tighten someone up that needed it? You got to personalize it, right? Because everybody takes criticism a different way. It's about knowing your staff and knowing there were writers where I could tell them, dude, this is abjectly terrible. You need to fix this. This this makes no sense. And there were guys you had to kind of like coddle a little bit and kind of nudge and steer because, you know, everyone in this business has an ego, right? I mean, if you're on the radio or if you're on TV or if you have your name literally at the top of every single thing you do, what other job do you do that? Like nobody's preparing taxes and puts their name at the top of every single page they do. We do that. We all have massive egos. And so you have to kind of like, it's kind of like being a, 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 a coach where you have to like kind of adjust your work to the person you're working with. But, you know, I'd like to think I was a gentle editor. I didn't want to like rewrite people's copy. I didn't want to, I wanted to help them make it better. I would like, I have, I have an editor now, Alex Iniguez, who's terrific. He's great at, you know, you know, I'm 42 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. I know how to do my job, but he comes in and he asks like one or two, like really pointed questions. I'm like, wow, I never, you know, and I'll, I'll go back in and I'll, and I'll, I'll rethink who I'm, I'll, I'll talk to one more person. I'll rethink the way I'm framing something and it makes the story so much better that's what a great editor does great editor doesn't just clean up your grammar he he or she really focuses what you're reporting on and and helps you get to the heart of the story was it always hockey for you uh not really um it's always been my favorite sport you know growing up as an islanders fan on long island like that was always my sport you know it's fun. i had an internship at the palm beach post my junior year of college and i was covering sports and uh uh, Israel Gutierrez, who's like a big star now, he he was the Marlins writer back then. And I was supposed to be covering like just high school stuff. My very first day, I'm in an orientation meeting. They pull me out of the orientation meeting as my first day as an intern and say, Izzy Gutierrez got the mumps. The whole Marlins team got the mumps. Do you want to go on a, a week and a half long spring training road trip and just write a bunch of stories? I'm like, yes, I do. And I, 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 I survived that first week and a half good enough where they started giving me better assignments. I covered... Um, uh, the heat in the playoff series. I covered the Florida Panthers in the playoff series. I covered, you know, the PGA tour came through. And when I had my exit interview, uh, my editor told me, he's like, I don't know what you're going to be doing, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be covering hockey because I can feel the enthusiasm in your stories that much more. It's more palpable when you're writing hockey. And, you know, it took me from then it took me what, 12, 13 years to get there, but I did finally get there. So when, what was the road that you took to get to, hey, now I get to be not just a, a hockey reporter, but a hockey beat reporter covering a team. Yeah. I took a weird path. I actually, I started covering hockey. My, my first job out of school was a, a suburb, kind of like the Daily Herald of Pittsburgh, like the third paper town, like a really good paper, but without the resources of the big boys. Sure. And so I was covering like Penguins home games. Um, and um, it was the year, I got, I got there the year Mario Lemieux came back in 2001. Wow. I went to the conference final. It was great. I was having a blast. And then they were so bad the next three years, they were able to draft Marc-Andre Fleury, Evgeny Malkin, and Sidney Crosby. Those are the three years I covered in full. Just I, co I covered Coach Eddie Olchek. That's how long ago this was. Wow. And, um, so but, but so I, I, that, I did that for three years. And I, I just, I had no, I'm from New York. Chicago was my adopted hometown. I just wanted to get out of Pittsburgh, really. Um, so I took a design job because when I wasn't covering the Penguins, I was designing. I'd kind of taught myself newspaper design. And gotten pretty good at it. So I took a design job at the Post Tribune, Northwest Indiana, the Gary paper. And um, I, from there, I, I did a year of that. I worked my way up to a writing gig. I annoyed them until they gave me a writing gig. A year later, I was the deputy sports editor. A year after that, I was the sports editor. And I did that for five or six years. And we were owned by the Sun-Times at the time. And they were trying to figure out how to save money because that's all newspapers try to do. Um, so they realized, well, 
we have a Notre Dame beat writer, but we have people based in Indiana. Why don't we just have one of them cover Notre Dame? So they picked me because I was doing well down there, I guess. And, you know, the Sun-Times could give a shit about Notre Dame usually. But that year was 12-0, and 0, national championship game, Manti Teo, all that stuff. Uh, so I got a much bigger audition, really, where I was getting back pages and two-page spreads instead of just a couple of, uh, you know, 300-word stories a week. So, and at that time, the NHL was in lockout. They were moving Adam Johns from the Blackhawks to the Bears beat. And the stars kind of aligned for me. And all of a sudden, they said, hey, you want, you know, you want to be a Hawks writer? I'm like, hell yeah, I do. That's all I've ever wanted to do. I want that job. So, you know, it, I always joke, it took me like 12 years to become an overnight success because I was, all right, I'm a suburban guy forever here. I'm comfortable with this life. It's I'm never going to get that dream job. And then like, it almost happened in like a two month span where all the stars aligned. I got so lucky to fall ass backward into what I do now. Have you watched the Manti Teo doc yet? I actually watched it just the other day. Yeah. What'd you think? I haven't seen it yet. And I'm, I'm taking input from everyone on whether or not I'm going to invest the time into watching it. It's worth, I mean, it's, it's, it's two hours total. It's worth watching. It's not like it's a huge commitment. Um, it's good. You know, it, it, it makes everybody kind of gets to be an empathetic character in it. You know, I, I think you, 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 you know, I, I was very grateful not to be in it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I went, I remember when the, when the story broke, it was just after I'd started covering the Hawks. I'm like, Oh God. And I went back on my stories and they all said, Teo said his girlfriend died. I didn't actually report that his girlfriend had died and I didn't, uh, I didn't, you know, uh, embellish it in any way. So I felt good about that, but um, uh, you know, it's, it's such a bizarre and, I would have liked to have seen more uh, attention paid to this, how, how we can destroy people's lives. Kind of like there's the Steve Bartman situation mm-hmm. where like something that doesn't really matter becomes the story. I mean, the fact that Manti Teo's girlfriend wasn't real, that shouldn't really have mattered all that much. We made the big deal out of the narrative. So we got mad when it turned out the narrative was wrong. Right. Yeah, when it comes down to it. That's not a football story. It's right. a personal it, like like that's the guy's personal life. And he played into it. But he thought he, I genuinely believe my experience covering Manti Teo was this was the most earnest and uh, um, what's the word? I'm credulous. Like he just he believed anything like, like he would. He believed everyone was always at their best. He believed the best in people to the point where I could see if anyone's going to get suckered into this and believe this is legit. It's going to be a guy like him who's he has. Not a, he didn't have a cynical bone in his body at the time. I'm sure he does now, but at the time he did not have any cynicism to it, and he probably just thought everything was normal. I wonder what type of person this changed him into too. Like why? Yeah. So That's maybe the story I want. Yeah. I want to hear what he's really like now. Like you took this like super virtuous hero icon that we made him out to be, and just destroyed him, and it destroyed, it derailed his career and everything. Like what? What? What is he like now? As a 30 something year old. That's like, what I want. Like, could you imagine how broken you would be if this happened to you and how it, it might, it might make you want to lash out yep. because of the way that you were treated and what happened. Yeah. I, I would not have handled it as well as he did. Let's put it that way. Uh, he, he was more mature than I would have been even at my age currently, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've thankfully, and I hope to never be, but I've never been, you know, publicly excoriated like i mean I, I get people who yell at me on twitter all the sure. time but I, i've never been to the point where i'm a national laughing stock you know and i can't imagine what that feels like when not only are you a national laughing stock but like for something that already hurt you deeply like that personally affected you now it affects you professionally and in every other way like that's got to change you as a person right that's the story i would like to read about manti teo and i don't know if he would allow that to be written if you would open up like that um, but that's what's interesting to me is like, 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 let's leave Steve Bartman alone. But if someone, if he did want to open up, I would read the hell out of that story about not about what happened back then. I don't want to relitigate what happened back then. I want to know what his life has been like since. And how does becoming, you know, an internet meme affect you going forward? Because that's got to just mess up your whole life. And, and can you find joy when, and with Manti for, whatever his dating life was after that, what was it like? Yeah. Like, well, well, how, how did, how were you approached? If you're, if you're infamous and famous, cause he's, he was famous before. And right. now you add the infamous part to it. What's that like for you when, when you're talking to people or trying to woo someone? I, I can't imagine. And that's, and, and that's, and again, that's not a sports story. 
like that's just a human interest story right like that doesn't have to be a sports story but i i'm always anyone who gets caught up in you know the and it's different manti teos wasn't like a 24-hour thing like most of these meme culture things are his went on for weeks and weeks and months and people still make lene kakua jokes 10 years later but i'm always fascinated by what that must be like i mean i was very very briefly in the middle of a story where i became the story when rocky wirtz lashed out at my dumb little question that's the little softball that i lobbed at him and you know i did nothing wrong and nobody was mad at me and nobody was laughing at me really but i was uncomfortable for like a week because it's all anybody wanted to talk about with me i was on the golf course i met a guy last week on the course and you know it came up what we do for a living he goes oh you're the guy that rocky yelled at like i don't want to be that guy and that's like one trillionth of what someone like manti teo had to deal with it's never fun to be the story especially when it's not a positive story Okay, so I do want to talk about that, but I'll I'll save that for later because I'm 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 more interested in some of the bigger picture stuff with you. So because you've done all of these jobs inside of newspaper writing, what do you think makes a great sports writer? Oh my god, um, I I, I don't think I mean I I could Voltron together some kind of like perfect sports writer, like with you know Gary Smith's writing ability and you know someone else's interviewing so I. Steve Russian's ability to turn a phrase. I could do that, but like, I don't think there really is one. I think there's all kinds of sports writers, right? I mean, I always, to me, everyone's, there's like, without oversimplifying it, almost everybody is either a writer or a reporter, right? You're either the kind of, you're either like an, uh, an Adam Schefter, uh, Wojnarowski type who's just chasing down news, or you're someone who wants to tell great stories. Now, there are occasionally people that can do both really, really well, and they're like, amazing and that's that they're like the unicorn that's what you want to be as a sports writer but um i i think you just you need to find your niche right because sports writing is so varied now especially in the internet age where so many different people can you can be a podcaster and get conflated with you know uh, or a blogger or you, you don't have to have a mainstream platform to get conflated into that overarching umbrella of the media mm-hmm. anymore you know, it used to be you had to, you had to work at the newspaper or a, or a TV station or a radio station to be under that umbrella. Now that that line has been blurred dramatically, and readers, to our detriment, can't always tell the difference. So it, it's really hard to say like this is what the quintessential you know sports media person should be, because there's so many you know there, there's 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 room for everybody. There's room for those bloggers. People want that. There's room for the podcasters who just shit on everything. There's room for that. There's room for intelligent, thoughtful discussion like you do. There's room for bombastic personalities. There's room for great storytelling. There's room for the reporting. All of that has a space now because everyone always says like, oh, I don't read anymore, but everyone's reading more than ever now. They just don't think about the fact that they're when they're looking at their phone, they're reading. They are consuming storytelling nonstop. That's all we do. Whether it's about Game of Thrones or the White Sox or politics or whatever, you are reading constantly now. There's more jobs in, you know, reporting, quote unquote, than there ever has been before. And I don't think you could just phone it down and say, this is what the perfect sports writer is, because I think we're all good at different things. Like me, I like to think that I'm really good at interviews to the point where I get people to tell me interesting things where I can tell a funny story. And I think I could turn a phrase every now and then and put together a good story. I'm not the greatest reporter in the world. I'm not one of these guys calling agents for hours and hours every night on the hope I get some information. I'll break some stories now and then. I'll stumble into some things. I know people. I can chase down a lead, but that's not my strong suit. Every, you know, every writer has their strong suits, and you have to understand that in order to carve out that niche in this ridiculously varied media landscape we have. What was it like dropping into what I refer to as Blackhawks Camelot? Blackhawks Camelot. Um, it was really easy. You know, that was like, I was scared out of my freaking mind when I took that job. You know, here I was like two months away, uh, removed from covering, you know, Etwan Moore at East Chicago Central High School. Like that was like the biggest thing I covered was high school baseball, high school basketball, football and baseball. And all of a sudden I'm covering the Blackhawks um, with no ramp up, like no training camp to get to know any of these guys. I had a four day training camp because of the lockout. And then they dropped right into a 21-0-3 start. 
And that became so big in 2013, that lockout season, that all the national types descended on the team. So there was like no access anyway for the first month and a half of the season. So I really kind of got to kind of dip my toe in it because Chris Cook would have kicked my ass any chance he had because he was so plugged into that team and I didn't know anybody. But because there was just this circus surrounding the team early on in that season, I, you know, I still got my ass kicked by Chris, but I had time to kind of ease my way into it a little bit where I wasn't just getting beaten down on a daily basis. I had, you know, and then they go and they win the Stanley cup. And then, you know, the first three years I cover the team, they're great. So everyone's always happy and willing to talk and you get to develop relationships with the players and the people around the team. Uh, It's a lot harder now. I mean, the team is, you know, I don't know any of these guys because I haven't been in the locker room in two years and the whole roster besides uh, Taves and Kane has changed. Uh, and the whole front office has changed and everything's bad. So everyone's more guarded. And obviously everybody was guarded under John McDonough. That was kind of the rule, but people are, you know, who wants to talk to me right now when all I'm writing is negative things. All I'm writing is about how bad they are. All I'm writing about is how I hate the idea that they're tanking and they, they don't deserve your money. Like who's, who's going to want to talk to me on the Blackhawks right now. So I, going in when they're great, like that's the way to do it. Like I, I told that to, uh, you know, Maddie Kenny used to work at the sun times. She got a job covering the golden state warriors. Like, in April of this year, I told her like, you're the same situation I was in. That's a great way to go because you're dropping in when there's no news to break. Everyone's good. They're going right into the playoff run and you'll have a couple of months to ease your way in. And she did a phenomenal job and she's going to be great, but it's nice to have that kind of like, it's a lot easier to drop in on a good team than a bad team. And it gives you time to like build your relationships up. Yeah. People see your face and that's by the time, by the time shit started hitting the fan, I was entrenched. Which okay. is a huge, you don't want to jump into a beat and then have chaos all the time and have no one you can go to for information. Outside of scandal, I'm going to put the Blackhawks scandal to the side. Is there a story about the championship teams that you covered that you wish you could have told, but because of how guarded and, and, and access averse the Blackhawks are that you weren't able to tell? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, nothing like major, but I had features just like, like, that's what I'm good at. Right. I'm good at coming up with story ideas. I think like that's, that's going back to what we were talking about earlier. That's a strong suit of mine is coming up with some story idea that nobody else would think of some weird, random quirk of being a professional athlete. Like that's the kind of stuff I love doing. And nobody ever wanted to say anything under the John McDonough era, because it was like a cone of silence around the team. So I would ask for, you know, you'd ask for an assistant coach. Nope. I didn't talk to Joel Quenville one-on-one until my fifth or sixth season on the beat. What? When Honest to God, when Joel Quenville was fired and he left, I had been covering him for seven, six, seven years. I genuinely didn't know if he knew my name because that's just the way access worked around the Blackhawks. He might have. I, I think he certainly knew who I was because I was standing next to him every single day, twice a day for years. But like, there was never a casual aside from running into him at like the Detroit MGM grand at a craps table. Like there's no interaction with them because that's just the way the Blackhawks operated back then. It's a lot different now. Like they're trying to open up and be a little more transparent and, you know, and, and, and let guys be themselves, which is great. It's a credit to them. But back then, man, like there wasn't some huge breaking story I want to do. I just wanted to tell anything interesting about these guys. And it was really hard to do that. Cause they just, they wanted everything vanilla, milk toast. They wanted everything to be told by their internal media, you know, Blackhawks TV and all that. They didn't really want us doing stories like that. Hmm. We, we were never the priority and we shouldn't be the priority, but we were like, it felt sometimes like we were the enemy and it didn't need to be that way. Yeah. I, I hate when there is that idea of us against them, but yeah. now knowing what we know, you know what I mean? Like now, now- yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, obviously I didn't cover the 2010 team, but I wrote a whole book on them. You know, that was like, that was half about that team. And that's what I, when I wrote a book, it was like, I, I didn't get to cover the 2010 team. I want to write about what they were like. And so like half my book is about, ha ha, yay, fun 2010 team. The Blackhawks, weren't they crazy? They like to drink and party. And now everything in hindsight is so tainted because, you know, now that we know what we know and uh, but I wasn't around that team. And it's not like, you know, some random guy who you didn't cover you calls you on the phone for a book. He's not going to be like, oh, and also this happened. But, you know, you, you feel guilty for not knowing about it anyway. How hard was that for you to deal with as someone who you care about stuff? Like, I, I follow you on Twitter. I see that you're not you're not just out here talking about hockey. You're talking about real life stuff. 
So for someone who was around all of this and someone who was reporting on the team, how did it affect you that there was this scandal and you couldn't, you couldn't shed light on the scandal until much later? Yeah, it was hard for a lot of reasons. That's, that's kind of the primary one. It's like you feel, you know, you feel guilt. Like it's not, I, again, I didn't cover the team. It's not my fault. It didn't get reported. It's not anyone's fault. It didn't get reported. This kind of stuff, I mean, they swept it under the rug real good. That's the whole problem is that they swept it under the rug. And, you know, it's not the fault of any other writer that was there. It's not the kind of thing you would see in the locker room. Um, but I still feel guilty about it. You still feel like, you know, I should have known. I should have, I should have been able to uncover this. I should have been able to give this guy, you know, Kyle Beach, some, some, uh, some peace and closure more, more rapidly. But until he files the lawsuit, until, until his memories come back, like, it's probably not going to happen. But it also taints everything you do forward now. Like, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, when, when COVID hit and none of us had anything to write, you know, we had, we had a Slack channel in, uh, in, in, in the athletic Slack channel. It was called Let's Get Weird. It was like any story idea you have that you could write right now with no sports being played, let's, let's get crazy. And what I did is I steered hard into the, the nostalgia, right? I wrote about, you know, which team was best, 2010, 2013, 2015. I just called up old guys, you know, let's, let's talk about some guys, right? Let's talk about some old Blackhawks. And you, you lean heavy on nostalgia because it was really fun to be a Blackhawks fan for a number of years there. And that's the kind of stuff you can do. If there's another pandemic and sports shutdown, I can't do that anymore. You can't paint that team in that, you know, halcyon light anymore. Like it's never going to feel like that. And every time, you know, they're going to have legacy nights and they're going to retire Jersey numbers and, you know, Marion Hose's Jersey is going to get retired next year. Seabrook and Keith, all these guys, Taves Kane, eventually they're going to get their statues and they're going to get their jerseys retired. And this is now a part of their story, fair or unfair, whether they should have known or didn't know uh, this is, you can't write about the 2010 Blackhawks without mentioning this. Although everyone in the comment section wishes I would stop talking about it but you can't it's part of the narrative now and so it's really hard you know woe is me i'm not a victim here but you can't have the same kind of fun with some of those nostalgia pieces that you used to because that nostalgia has been kind of it's ruined by the reality of the situation everyone's memories are tainted now no that's the truth it, it's the truth as someone who, who loves hockey and covers hockey what do you wish more people knew about hockey? You know, anyone who's ever been to a hockey game will tell you it's the best live sport, right? It's the best sport to see live. It doesn't translate on TV. If I could get everyone into the building just once for like a really good game, not like a Blackhawks game this season when they're purposely trying to lose. But like, you know, I, I think of like a, 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 like a, a Blackhawks, that Blackhawks Maple Leafs game. Uh, early in the season a few years ago where it was like eight to seven and Kane and Austin Matthews were trading goals and taunting each other like or or I think of like a one nothing red uh, Rangers Blackhawks games during the random regular season game like I think it was 2014 one of the best hockey games I ever saw meant nothing nobody scored and it was incredible if you can get someone into the overtime of game five against the Kings in 2014 in the conference final they'd be hockey fans for life it just doesn't translate to TV as well like football You've been a, a you you know how boring the NFL is live. Yes, it's not it's just guys standing around. Yes, like when I was back when I was doing stories, I was working on a story. I was doing the Bears a little bit. I was working on a story on how these guys spend four hours standing around with their thumbs up their asses waiting for things to happen. That's like all it is to be an yep. NFL player. It's made for TV because in those all the downtime, you're watching replays and you're breaking it down and you're telestrating. Hockey's the total opposite where it doesn't translate to TV because there's too much action. You can't go back and highlight a play and, and break it down. So, you, you know, football fans are so educated about the game and they know what a cover two is and what a nickelback is and all this, because every play is being broken down in front of them. That doesn't happen in hockey. Eddie Olchek was great at, you know, for all you young hockey players out there, but there's only so many breaks in the action. It's not a sport that lends itself to education the way NFL does. So it's harder to build your fan base because you got to really want it, right? You got to dive in yourself to become an educated hockey fan. But if you go there once, I just wish people would get in the building because there's no better game live. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Do you suspect that people will come to the building now? Particularly the um, one that you cover. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, they should have had no fans last year, right? Like it should have been like the dark ages, but it wasn't. There were still 18,000 tickets sold every night, which is massive amount of tickets being sold. Um, part of that is um, there's still like, it was so cool to be a Hawks fan for so long and so catastrophically expensive to get in that there's a whole subset of people that are just like, I can get in the door now. I can get a $15 ticket online on the secondary market and I can just get in the door and who cares if they're not that good anymore. I finally get to watch a Blackhawks game live. And that's, that's sustained them for a while here. I don't know how long that's going to last. Like they, if this is really a four five, six year process, I don't think it'll ever get back to those 2004, 2005 levels where there was just four, five, 6,000 people in the building. I remember once my, my, my wife, then, then my girlfriend at the time, we went to an Islanders, Hawks game, we had an entire 300 level section to ourselves. The entire section, those are massive sections. We were literally the only two people in it. Um, I don't think it'll ever get that bad again because the Blackhawks built such a sturdy, hearty fan base. You know, people want to call them black uh, bandwagon fans. They're not bandwagon fans anymore. They jumped on the bandwagon and now they're, they're the fans that are yelling about the fourth line left wing and, you know, saying that this prospect should be called up because he's a better skater than like they are, die hard you know you know pure fans now like that's that's how fans are created right every fan has an origin story not everybody comes from parents who are fans you have to fall in love with the sport at some point so there is there are millions of people in the chicago area that are blackhawks fans legitimate blackhawks fans now it's up to them whether they're willing to spend what it costs to take a family of four to a game but it'll never be the dark ages again but you'll never have those camelot days again either it's interesting to me, and the thing that I'm looking for is what, from the Blackhawks to kind of know where how bad things are, is what the Bulls started doing in the early 2000s, where they promoted coming to the United Center as, hey, come see Kobe. Yeah. Hey, oh, yeah. come see LeBron. And I'm yeah. just, I'm waiting for the Blackhawks to be like, Connor McDavid's in town, Johnny Goudreau is in town, Steven Stamkos is in town. See, I have, a, I have a theory. I don't think that will work in Chicago. I, I, I've, I, I've had this theory about Chicago where it is an amazing Blackhawks town. It is not a hockey town. I'm with you there. Nobody cares about the playoffs when the Blackhawks aren't in them here. Like there's, uh, there's some people, but like the ratings, like, like Buffalo, Boston, Minneapolis, they care no matter whether their teams are in it or not, they're watching. Chicago, the ratings for the playoffs are abysmal if the Blackhawks aren't in them. This is an amazing Blackhawks town, and it's not yet a hockey town. It's not like like maybe Connor McDavid would draw you to the, the rink, but it's, Steven Stamkos ain't bringing you in here. Evgeny Malkin's not going to bring you in here. Like I don't think that this city is at that point yet in terms of hockey. It never was really. Um, it, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Like I remember in 2014, uh, the Sun Times, God bless him, it was one of the best assignments I ever had. They sent me to cover Kings Rangers in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, after the Blackhawks lost in game seven, because that's what that's what we did, right? You covered the championship series, no matter what sport you covered all the all-star games. Like, you know, this is what newspapers, are. I love the sometimes because they still do things like that. They, they, they're, you know, they, 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 they cling to their, their, their tenets, which is, you know, we cover the big events. The sometimes is there and we went and it was awesome. And I wrote great stories. I thought I was killing it. Nobody read those stories. 
nobody. I could see the metrics and it was the most depressing thing I ever saw of the amount of clicks these stories were getting. I'm like, this is a really good story. I wrote about the Kings or, you know, <laughs> who the Blackhawks have battled two straight years. Like that's their big rival. Nobody cared. I, this just is not a hockey town. It's a Blackhawks town. And that's the problem with hockey in general. You talk about how does hockey get bigger? Hockey's regional. It's not national. Everybody will watch Sunday night football, no matter who's in it. Seahawks, Broncos. Sure. Whatever. I'll watch that. Are you going to watch the Kraken against the Sharks, though? Probably not. Not in Chicago, you're not. So I don't know how we get to that point because hockey is so provincial where, you know, every, most cities are like this. Chicago is not unique this way. This isn't like a slag on Chicago. Most hockey cities are like this outside of Buffalo, Boston, Minneapolis, where people grow up with hockey. It's just not something you do. You don't, you know, Chicago is a baseball town. So you watch the World Series, whether the Cubs or Sox are in it but you don't watch the Stanley cup final necessarily. It's just not how it is here. And I don't know how you get from point A to point B there. I don't know how you, if, if winning three Stanley cups in six years and having all these mega stars didn't turn it into a hockey town, I think we're just destined to have a Blackhawks town, which isn't the end of the world. Like that doesn't affect the Blackhawks bottom line in any way, but well, I guess except in the fact that you started to market the visiting teams coming through. I want to give you a compliment, and I, I know that you'll probably shirk away from it. I'm a subscriber to The Athletic. I love The Athletic. And I remember when you jumped to The Athletic, I was like, oh, shit, The Athletic is real. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a weird thing, but, like, when you started to see people that, are, that had names that were on beats go over to The Athletic, I knew that it wasn't one of these things where – six months into it, you were going to be like, well, I tried that thing and that thing didn't work. How big of a deal was it for you to leave the Sun-Times to go to The Athletic? It was so hard. I mean, I'm, I'm an old school newspaper romantic. Like I've like, I learned to read by reading the sports section in Newsday every morning. Like, I think it's all I ever wanted to do is be at a newspaper. I never had interest in becoming a radio person or a TV person. I just wanted to write and I wanted to be hold it in my hands and like get the, the ink smudges on my, I love that. I love the smell of a newspaper. I love everything about, like, like I said, I've had every job you can have in newspapers and I loved all of them. I love every aspect of making a newspaper. I loved it when I was at the Observer Reporter in, in Western PA and I could run down in the basement at night and watch the papers come off the presses and get like a warm one in my hand where the ink would just be smeared all over this. I love everything about it. And it was, and I love the Sun Times. That's the paper I wanted to work at since my, my first day at Northwestern in 1997, I picked up the sun times. I'm like, Oh, it's a tabloid. It's like Newsday, And then I read it. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is the kind of writing. This is what I want to do. So to give that up was really hard. But like I said, I done six seasons of that beat. That is a, a, a grueling NHL and NBA beats are so grueling and the travel is so hard. And I had, uh, you know, two little kids at home and, you know, it, it was time. It was time to try something different. It was time to, not sit there looking over my shoulder to worry about some minor league transaction that would require a 300 word story to be written right away. Uh, I, I wanted to be able to like, when I was home, I wanted to be present mm. and I wasn't able to do that at the paper because I was the only guy on that beat and it was up to me to get every scoop and to be on top of everything. And that's, I loved it. I, I, I don't, you know, regret it in any way. And I, I'm grateful to everyone who, who's there and Crystal Luca for giving me that chance. They made my careers loved every second of it, but it was time to not do that. It was time to be able to like, when I'm home, be home and put my phone in my pocket and not worry about this stuff and have a partner on the beat who I could, you know, share that load with. And also, you know, write more than 650 words at a time. I mean, it's hard writing for a tablet. I'm a, I don't know if anyone's noticed this. I'm really long-winded and it's a, it's not my, not, not one of my greatest attributes, but the athletic allows me to like really tell a story much longer than I could have at the Sun Times. The Sun Times had literal physical restraints that is just comes with the territory that I don't have anymore. And it, it's freeing as a writer to be able to just tell a story. And, you know, there's times where I abuse that and I write too long. And, but sometimes I just want to write a 4,000 word mailbag and have some fun with it. And I could just do that now. Like, I, you know, the athletic is, a, it's like a writer's paradise where you can really uh, be exactly the kind of writer you want to be. We have so many different types, all this writers I was talking about at the beginning of this interview, or we're talking about all the different kind of sports writers you can be, you can be your best version of a sports writer because there's so many other people to help fill in the gaps. Like we have 
Pierre Lebrun to break all the news for me. And Scott right. Powers is so much better at breaking news than I am. So I got him to lean on. And, you know, I could go and write stories about what it's like to take a smelling salt and, you know, why hockey players have to change their clothes 10, 11 times a day and what that's like. And all these dumb little stories that I've always been fascinated by. I can just go off and do stupid crap like that while also, you know, being there for when the big news happens and reporting these kinds of stories like the Kyle Beach story and writing the columns that have to be written and, you know, kind of doing the job the way I had always envisioned, but never was possible anywhere. So like the Sun-Times was my dream job and somehow this one is even dreamier. I'm like, I'm like the luckiest bastard on the planet. Like it's, it's so stupid how fortunate I've been in this business. You're romantic about newspaper writing and I think that that's wonderful. You're, you talk about, newspaper writing the way i talk about radio mm -hmm. so I, I always dig when i find people that are that into what it is they do but both of us are in mediums that need to evolve yes so as someone who's done everything in newspapers and now you work for an internet site that acts kind of like a newspaper as far as i'm concerned well, as we're, a we're a newspaper again we're owned by the new york times oh that's right yeah that's right you are a newspaper again i'm, I'm back in newspapers how do you think how do you think we can evolve as media and as specifically print media? How do you think it can evolve and reach people in a way that it maybe hasn't over the last decade or so? Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, everyone is everything now, right? Like, you know, I have a podcast. I'm not a professional talker guy. This isn't what I do for a living, but I have a podcast with Scott. Um, you know, we do live rooms on, on the website where you can talk to us live. Like these are all things that I'm theoretically untrained for. But that's what you need to do, right? You need to capture the audience any way you can. And, you know, like I love talking shop is like my favorite thing. Like I said, I, I love the business. I love talking about the business. I love talking for college journalists and things like that. I, I, I love this business as stupid and infuriating and horrible as it is. So I love talking shop and doing something like this. But this is another thing that I'm not necessarily good at. I just get excited to talk about this. I stuff. would disagree with you on that. I think that every, <laughs> yes. I, I'm serious. Like every platform that I've seen you on, when you've come on and done the radio, the feedback that we get from people is great. Your podcast is good. When you do television, you're really good. You've got the voice for everything. So I talked way too fast, though. That's the New Yorker in me. That's all right. Like we, <laughs> hey, as Fifty Cent said, if I'm talking too fast, you just gotta listen a little faster until you catch up, right? So there you go. And I, I didn't think that I was gonna make a Fifty Cent reference with you today, but why not? <laughs> I get it all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I, we're, we're all trying to figure that out, right? We're all trying to evolve in this business. We're all trying to figure out, again, like I take issue with people who say that journalism is dying, that the business is failing. It's not. More people are consuming more information than at any point in the history of humankind. Like it's, in, it's, it's inarguable that there is more content and more people reading that content than ever. The trick is getting people to pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, that's, what's difficult is because there were, I remember in 1994 when I was a freshman in high school or sophomore in high school, I remember Newsday started, had its own website. I'm like, why are they giving this away for free? Who would do this? And, and 20 years later, yeah, they should never have done that. They should have, there should have always been a paywall. We trained people to expect really good stuff without having to pay for it. And now we're trying to put that genie back in the bottle. And The Athletic, we made great inroads with that. I mean, we have 1.3 million subscribers, people paying. And yeah, a lot of them are paying a dollar a month and then, you know, canceling and resubscribing a month later at a dollar a month. I know they're, I know the games, I do it with, with, with various uh, outlets. But there are people that are starting to come to grips with the fact that quality journalism is worth paying for. And that's what we need to do. And I don't, we haven't found it yet. We don't know the formula yet. I mean, here at The Athletic, we're, we're evolving. We do a lot more breaking news now. We do more, uh, uh, like I said, those live Q&As and stuff like that. We're, we're, it's, when The Athletic first started, you know, there were people that would write like once a month. That's not happening anymore. We've got to feed the beast. And I, I'm all for that. As a newspaper guy, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of behind all this stuff. I think, I mean, I'm not behind it, but I, I, I support it. Um, but we're trying to find that sweet spot of like, how do you let your writers cook, but not burn them out? but also provide enough stuff that people want to pay for it. How do you make all that fit? And does that mean you got to hire more people to fill in those gaps, but then that's more money you need to get from subscribers to pay for those writers. And we have, I mean, we employ like 400 sports journalists, like we're, the, we're, we're, we're providing that, but we're still trying to figure out how to make it, 
you know, extremely profitable. We got sold for over half a billion dollars. Yay for us. But the New York Times is, you know, one of the few outlets that can afford to do something like that. So how do we get more people to accept the fact that good journalism, whether it's, look, I know it's just sports, it's infotainment. I'm not solving world hunger here. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, getting behind the scenes of the Trump presidency here, but it, it matters to people. People want this information. How do we make it so that they understand it costs money to send me to Edmonton to write some of these stories? And how do they get them to agree with the fact that, yeah, we should pay for this? Like, you know, this is this is a subscription worth having, just like my Netflix is, just like my car lease is. Like, how do you make it indispensable? And that's really hard when what you're doing is frivolous like sports. But we're getting there. It feels like over the last several years, you see like the Tribune's behind a paywall. The Sun-Times is behind a paywall. Um, you know, more and more papers are going behind paywalls because more and more people are, are accepting the fact that, you know, this stuff's not free anymore. And as long as we can do that, that's how we become the kind of outlets that can allow journalists to be their best selves and do their best work by not worrying about how we're going to pay for it all. I could imagine you covering politics. Oh, I'd love it. I'd be terrible at it, but I'd love writing the columns. Why would, you. why would you be terrible at it? I think, I, you, I think you care about stuff and you're a really good reporter. So I, I, I would have a much harder time. I think, um, I don't like, I would, it, it would, I would be hard be, for you to I, make it clinical. I would have to be more of a pundit than a reporter because okay. yeah. I would not be able to be objective. Like I could be like, you know, you send me to a Mets game tomorrow. I could write an objective story about the Mets where my fandom is hidden. If you sent me to like a Trump rally, I would not be capable of presenting that as straightforward down the middle facts, like election conspiracies and QAnon. Like I would not be able to do that. Like I, I would not be able to look myself in the mirror if I were treating, if I, if I weren't being true to myself that way. So I would have to be like, like you want to put me on MSNBC to be a pundit. You want to have me write in columns or something like, yeah, we could, that I, I might have some fun with that. I might, I might, that might be cathartic. I don't think I have it in me though, to be a straight down the line political reporter, because it's just, it's too off the rails right now. I don't think I could, I, I, I couldn't be that guy in the diner uh, in, in, in Missouri talking to some Trump voter about uh, white man angst. I couldn't do it. Fair enough. I would just, I'd laugh in the guy's face. I'm sorry. Like I, I know, I know who I am and I wouldn't be able to stomach it. Okay. All right. That that makes sense, I guess. Like, yeah, you're you you can't you need to look at it clinically and you couldn't look at it clinically to, to I do could it do it, right but way. I would feel dirty afterwards. I would need a long shower afterwards. You need a silkwood shower to go in there. <laughs> <laughs> Is there who who are the, the writers or media people even? Maybe it's not just writing, that you look at and you go, Oh, I really like what that person did or there are elements of that that I can add to who Mark Lazarus is. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, the, the amazing thing is I work with so many of them now. Like, so many of them are at The Athletic that it's like, I don't want to blow smoke up my colleagues' asses. But, um, like, when I was a kid, it was like, like, I wanted to be Steve Russian. I wanted every single sentence to be funny, to have some kind of pun in there. Like, it was just dad joke palooza. I've loved that since I was a little kid. Uh, just the way he can make anything interesting was, uh, I love that. And Gary Smith was like my writing hero. Like the way he could make any story, the most fascinating story you ever read. Uh, Chris Jones, who I've gotten to know a little bit, he writes for, uh, I think Esquire and GQ over the years. Uh, go and read his Roger Ebert profile from like just before Roger died. One of the best stories I've ever read. Um, current ones, like, like someone like Bruce Arthur, who again, a friend of mine. So I, I probably shouldn't say that, but he, he works at the Toronto star. And he was a sports columnist and just a phenomenal sports columnist. But since COVID, he's segued into becoming more of a news columnist. He became a COVID columnist and, and political columnist. And his stuff, he brings that, like what sports writers do so well is kind of distill something to its essence and really get to the heart of the matter that political reporters and news writer reporters don't always do as well because sports, every sports writer is also a sports columnist. That's not the case for news writers. So when you put a, a really brilliant thoughtful intelligent interesting guy like bruce arthur who's a, who's honed his craft in sports and put him in that political arena it's amazing and his stuff is like the, the the best stuff i've read on these topics so there's guys like that 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 have made that transition that i really admire um 
in, in sports writing, I mean, there's just so many of them out there. Like, like the way that Mike Russo in Minnesota can get literally anyone in the world on the phone within like five minutes just blows my mind. Uh, I look at like, young guys, like people that are half my age, Peter Baugh, our, our, our Colorado Avalanche writer. I got to work with him during the Western Conference Final. He's like 11 years old and he's brilliant. He, he's great. He's, he, he, he's did such a good job covering the Avalanche. I was so mad at him because like, I didn't, I wasn't that good when I was my first year on the, uh, you know, covering a, a championship team. He's getting people on the phone in the Czech Republic within like a half hour of the game ending and turning around these great features in a, in a crowded market at, a, at the most difficult time when you're the most burned out. Like I find inspiration from the, the young people. Like that's one of the great things about working athletic is I'm surrounded by like 20 somethings who are already better at their job than I am. And it like motivates me to like, well, shit, I, got, I need to become more well-versed in analytics. I need to become better at, you know, uh, you know, being in touch with the, what, what the fans are thinking, because like I'm in my little 42 uh, year old ivory tower here. Like, it's just fun to look around There's Again, there's just so much great sports writing and sports content in the world where it's, you know, bloggers or, 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 or true mainstream journalists or, or people like you on the radio and, and, and TV. There's so much great stuff out there. If you know where to look, uh, it's just, there's inspiration everywhere you look. That's how I feel about like Emily Kaplan. Like, yeah, and and Absolutely. Russ Dorsey. Like I'm like, look how she re- look how Emily reinvented herself. She yeah. was an NFL reporter, yeah. who became a prominent hockey reporter and then became a TV person, like that. Yeah, she was an NFL person who was 21. Like we worked together over at Stadium, and mm-hmm. I'm amazed by her. Like I was amazed by her back then, and I was like, how old are you? I'm it's like, really how? hard to that between the benches shit is so hard to to do well. Yes, because nobody wants it. And then you're like, oh, wow, she's actually really good at this. This is actually useful information. Like, she's great at it. Like, that's a that's such a difficult job to do. And she had no real formal training in it and just walked right into it and killed it. It's pretty awesome. Uh, How about I, someone like uh, Is- Isabel Kershudian? She covered the Washington Capitals for the Washington Post for years. She's now the freaking Moscow or Ukraine uh, bureau chief for the fucking Washington Post, covering a war and doing it better than just about anybody. Like, three years ago, I was drinking with her after a Caps-Hawks game. Like, I don't understand how people are doing this shit. <laughs> Why is everyone so talented? Like, dial it back a notch. You're killing it for the rest of us. No, no. The, the, My mom's going to be disappointed in me that I'm not doing this stuff. The young ones are out here, man, and they <laughs> they are they are out here doing it, whether it's Russ Dorsey or Malika Andrews or, or Emily Kaplan. They're just out here doing their thing, and I, I couldn't be happier for it. A couple more things before I let you go, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Hockey, what's a hockey experience in the United States that I need to go see? Oh, wow. Um, man, I wish you could have been to a game at Joe Lewis Arena before uh, the, the Red Wings moved to the new rink. Uh, in the States, oh, God, that's a really tough question. Because, you know, like, it's fun to go to, like, a Dallas Stars game. Like, this, I guess Nashville would be the one. If you're going to go to a game, go to Nashville. Because I figured you right were going to say that. Well, well, it's just like, like, like I'm tired of Nashville. Like, like they're having the draft next year in Nashville and I'm already dreading it. Like I can't do that anymore. I'm too old for this shit, but I'll just go get some barbecue, have one drink and go back to the hotel. But, um, but there's something about the Nashville experience where it is something that the, that Chicago doesn't have where it's, it's more like Wrigley where, you know, mm. you're in the bars, you stumble into the arena and then you stumble back out into the bars. Cause it's all right there downtown on the strip. So that whole Vegas, Go to a game in Vegas. It's right there on the strip. Same thing, but like magnified. And the crowds are so great in Vegas. Like this, it's 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 the crazy environment. There's always a ton of road fans there because people make road trips out of it. Go to a game in Vegas. That's the one you got to go to. It's unlike anything. It, it's everything you wanted. They steer so hard into the goofy Vegas shit. Like you know, the the, the night fighting the Kraken in the beginning of the, it's it's great. Like I love all that corny shit, and it, it's such a fun environment. They got the drum line with the neon and everything. It's so great. Like go to a game in Vegas, you'll never be disappointed. Last thing, Blackhawks going forward as an organization, ending on a real downer note here. Oh Lord, sorry. Um, <laughs> what what do you expect from? what Blackhawks fans are going to see over the next couple of years. Well, that's the hardest part, right? Like if, if you're in a rebuild as a fan, you can at least say, well, at least I get to see these young guys come up and be great. Right. Well, you're not going to see any of them this year because they don't want to expose them to a miserable death march of a season. So all those good prospects are going to be in Rockford or in the juniors this year. And you're going to be watching veterans like Max Domi and Andreas Athanasiu and Jack Johnson and Colin Blackwell, like that's going to be the team. This team is designed 
not to be good and not to be exciting really, because they don't want those young guys. They, they, Kyle Davidson's very smart about this. Like Kirby doc and Adam Boquist, all these guys were rushed to the NHL by a team that was frantic about falling into irrelevance and their development was hindered as a result. Kyle Davidson understands that and he's being smart about this and he's going to practice patience. Also, they want to get the top pick next year. So they don't want anyone good there. So next, this coming season is going to be hard as a fan because there's not going to be much to latch onto other than, you know, wrap your arms around Kane and Taves. This is the last time you're probably going to see them in a Blackhawks uniform because they're probably both gone by February. Um, after that, you'll be able to start watching some of these young guys come up, you know, Kevin Korchinski and Frank Nazar, the two guys they drafted in the first round this year, both very exciting players. I think Frank Nazar, if he's everything that the, the, that people say he's going to be, he's going to be electric, the kind of player people will love and want to wear his jersey. There's a ton of young defensemen in the system. There's all kinds of young players. Lucas Reichel is maybe their top forward prospect right now. In the next few years, you're going to start seeing them come up. And the hope, the hope is that it'll feel like 2007, 2008, when Kane and Taze were breaking in and Sharp was coming into his own. And just before they signed Hosa and Brian Campbell and those guys. Dustin Bufflin shows up. That's what you're hoping for, right? Is that this group in two years looks like that group did back then. And even then it took a few more years to get there. That's like the best case scenario, but boy, it's hard. There's no guarantee in any of this stuff. It's not like, you know, basketball or football where if you got the number one pick overall, chances are that guy's going to be legit. Everyone's saying Connor Medard is the next superstar. He's going number one next year. But even if the Blackhawks go 0 and 82 next year, they only have like an 18.5% chance of getting him. Like this is a very difficult process they're about to embark on. And it's very high risk to tank because it doesn't always work out. The Detroit Red Wings made the playoffs for a quarter century straight and they've been irrelevant now for seven years. They're just starting to add free agents now where they think they might start turning the corner in year eight. And that is very possibly what the Blackhawks are looking at. Look at the Buffalo Sabres. They've been rebuilding since I was a child. Hmm. Like at what point, you know, it, it could turn around real fast. The, the Avalanche were a 48-point team just a few years before they won the Stanley Cup. It can happen. But more often than not, it doesn't happen. So it's a big risk to take the route they're going to take. And it's going to be a lot for fans to swallow, especially this coming year. After that, you'll have some things to cling to. Sir, this was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, giving of your time. This was this was exactly what I thought it would be, and I thank you for that. <laughs> hey, man, I always love talking shop on or off the air. Appreciate you taking the time with me. That was illuminating stuff from Mark Lazarus, and I'm glad that we had the opportunity to talk. I, I wasn't kidding when I was saying I enjoy talking to people that are passionate about media because – I'm so passionate about it. Like I, I still like learning how things work. I still like learning like some of the tricks of the trade of people that are in the business and, and like best practices type stuff when folks work in the business and especially someone as good as Mark has been. I could see him though. I, I wasn't bullshitting. Like I could see him working in politics. But he's right. Like he he clearly wouldn't be able to not make it personal. And I appreciate that he is very self-aware about that. All of our interviews and what we do on the pod are all brought to you by Aurelio's Pizza. Aurelio's Pizza, it's the sauce. You should go check it out, Aurelio'sPizza.com. Whether we're talking out of the old oven in Homewood, the way that I like it, one half sausage, one half pepperoni, if you're really getting adventurous then you you put them together but that's usually how i do out of you gotta ask like when you're talking about homewood you gotta ask old oven to say it and they will do that for you i've actually made a pizza with joe and we put it in the old oven and it was delicious because it kind of always is delicious but that blackhawks thing it's interesting to me how they're going to go about keeping Blackhawks fans in the jump rope. Mark and I agree. If you listen to me on the air, I've said this quite a bit. To me, Chicago has always been a Blackhawks town and not an NHL town. And it's funny, he cited the same thing that I did, where you look at the television ratings of the the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you never see Chicago as a top 10 market unless the Blackhawks are in it. Now, if the Blackhawks are in it, then we're usually at the number one market. 
for hockey. But I think that it's it's definitely something that we should look at as a do people love this sport or do they love a winner? And I think with with the Blackhawks over the last decade and a half, it's it's a decade, it's been we love a winner. But he's great. You should check him out on the athletic. I have a subscription to the athletic. I tell my students, here's all right. So look, here's what I tell my students, and it's the, the athletic usually gives discounts for students. So let's say that you're a student who's listening to this, or if you're a a, a parent of a student, give them a subscription, and it costs not that the athletic costs a lot. I think I pay like seven dollars a month. But I think you can get it for a dollar a month or two dollars a month as a student. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> like, I told my students about it in my class at DePaul this past quarter. And one of them legit emailed me and was like, it changed my life. And I'm glad. I'm glad that they understand that for some of the quality stuff, you got to pay. And it's good. You're supporting people that do good journalism. And I'm glad, but that's a way that if if the sticker shock of some of this stuff is too much for you, hey man, you can you can find hacks, okay? You can you can figure out hacks for it. Big thanks to Mark. Thanks to the folks over at the Athletic. I really love talking to smart people, and and he's one of the smart people that works in our business, and we're lucky to have him in this town. Town of Chicago, if you're not listening in Chicago. Shout out to all the people that listen to the House of L podcast from wherever they are. We do appreciate the folks that got us our start here, and we try to service them. Hope you got something good out of that episode. Check out the the rest of the episodes. It's a great catalog of guests. I know that we're over like 300 episodes now, but all of the stuff is free. So if you scroll through and you're like, I really like this person or that person, They may have already been on the podcast. Just check out the episodes, and I promise you won't be disappointed. Some of the folks we even going to ask back. I got to get Barry Rosner back on the podcast. He's a delight. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.